Episode 40, The Best of 2019. My name is Michael Delgado, and I'm your host. Normally, I come to you each week from the luxurious library bar in the magnificent Mayfair Hotel. But today, I'm holed up in the bookstore in Chinatown, avoiding all the tourists here for the Rose Parade while I take aim at my headache with shots of tequila. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. Oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 Today, being a new decade and all, I thought it would be appropriate to look back at our first year podcast and present some of the best bits of the show. I had the great pleasure of meeting some 40 guests, including artists, poets, musicians, gallerists, curators, and architects. While each one shared a unique take on their craft and offered exciting insights, I tried to include snippets from the lesser-known guests as well as from those that attracted the widest audience. In the latter category, my first guest on the program was Tosh Berman, who came on to promote the launch of his memoir, Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World. This first bit captures both a glimpse at just how important the elder Berman was as an influencer to major artists of the period but it also shows how Tosh would be intimately pulled into the scene. And in this case, it's quite literally a scene. Tosh describes his role in one of Warhol's earliest feature films, Tarzan and Jane Regained, sort of. Speaking of Warhol, you were in his movie. Yeah. As a child. As a child. And I played as a child. Boy. (laughs) The Tarzan. I I had to say this, but I was typecast. (laughs) (laughs) It was in Beverly Glen, I guess around 63, 62, and uh, Warhol was Gerard Malenga and a couple other people came across from New York by car, I think, you know, Route 66, and they ended up in Los Angeles where uh, Warhol's great, I don't you know, I'm not sure if it was Warhol's first trip. To Los Angeles? Well, he was at Ferris before that, so... He was, okay. Yeah. But for sure, Los Angeles, to Warhol's mind, was a plus. It's like the Hollywood dreams, you know, the movie dreams. And he's correct. He's absolutely correct that Hollywood, Los Angeles, is unique because this is a place where they made dreams of sorts. Projected dreams, projected by... And... Um, Warhol realized that, so he came west <laughs> to make his, I think his first feature-length movie of sorts. This was the Tarzan... Tarzan and Jane Regained, sort of, with Taylor Mead playing Tarzan. There's Dennis a great Hopper. photo, by the way, in the book for the audience <laughs> of Taylor Mead yes. as Tarzan. T- Taylor Mead played my dad. <laughs> 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 my father played the white headhunter. He was the bad guy, I guess. And Klaus Oldenburg was in it as well, another great artist uh, who played, I think, a bad guy too. There's Dennis Hopper. <laughs> you know, there's not much of a big plot. It's basically a whole movie of sorts of like whatever was happening, Warhol shot it. The strange thing is, I remember those days in that time, 
very precisely. But, and I remember like Jordan Malenga there, I remember Taylor Mead, of course, he was so amusing. And I remember the woman who played Jane, ever. I mean, there's other artist films and, you know, goofy stuff, but there's a fact that it's Warhol, Dennis Hopper, my dad, Klaus Oldenburg, you know, Taylor Mead, and of course, Tosh Berman, the author of Tosh. <laughs> um, in this one, you know, this, this one movie, it's taken a certain, at a specific time, right. a time capsule, it's perfect. Flashing forward to art makers today, my guest was B.T. Wolf, a London transplant and rising art and musical star who, like Berman before her, is pulling a wide range of creatives from all ages and disciplines into her orbit. For example, she's collaborated with Wynton Marsalis, as well as a Nobel laureate in astronomy, Dr. Robert Wilson. While she had much to say about her approach to work, I encourage you to listen to the interview. I'd like to play one of her songs that neatly samples her style and exquisite lyrics. Here is Beatty Wolf with Little Moth. You're too precious for this world 
Unlike making most music, visual art making can often be a solitary endeavor. But the Dark Bob, a musician in his own right, but self-described painter, and one half of the anti-punk performance duo Bob and Bob, talks about the difficulties of collaboration. A trove of Bob and Bob recordings, videos, publications, and ephemera has just been included in the Smithsonian Archives, and LACMA recently purchased several drawings for their permanent collection. Here is the dark Bob about being part of an art team. And I have been doing music. So Bob and Bob did music right out right, of the gate, right too. The gate. But then, like, how did that evolve? So, like, were you trained as a musician? Or? No, uh, you know, both of us and, and myself were visual art. You know, we paint and draw. That's the thing I know how to do. I can draw a horse. And uh, as a kid, that's what my passion always was. But somehow, uh, I, I, when I was a kid, I also used to, my parents used to have all these cornball bossa nova records and stuff, and I couldn't resist writing lyrics for them, you know, so I listened to <laughs> these records, and I'd just start writing lyrics, and uh, when no one was in the house, I, you know, I'd start singing with these things. But they were, were they always sort of like silly lyrics, or like you were earnest? I think, I think I was earnest. Uh, and uh, sincerity is one of Not my flaws. Not to say flaws. that all the lyrics of Bob and Bob or your right. work are silly, but... Uh, uh, we were very serious, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we like to be funny. Uh, it, yeah. It's hard being in an art team. There's a reason there aren't a lot of art teams, because art is really... Fine art is a, a deep expression of one's unique neuroses. So putting two people together and trying to find that depth of personal neuroses is tricky. Mm-hmm. And we just happen to click. There's something, uh, you know, I, we fight all the time. Uh, I can't stand the guy. And yet when, when, when we get together to work, uh, there's some sort of a, a soul connection. Huh. Uh, Interesting. Where, I... where we, uh, you know, work at each other. We... we kiss each other off, we entertain each other, and it results in a singular piece of art that the two of us have contributed to, and and it's hard for both of either of us to distinguish who did what, right. and nor is it important for us to distinguish who well, did what. Well, that's a true collaboration, and collaboration right. is tough, and, and, and I think that goes towards your ability to have migrated into making music, right? Because mm-hmm. that's a highly collaborative thing. Even yeah, it though, is. Even though you can go and make your own, you can do everything right. yourself, it's really not the same. 
Well, I hate to say it, but when I make music, I'm such a painter in my being, you know. I, I'm grateful to have talented people come in and work with me, but I'm still uh, neurotically focused on trying to achieve or get something that only I can understand, maybe. Hmm. Uh, because to me, it's all art. and. But I, I do like collaborating. That, that maybe we can get rid of what I just said. I don't know. Maybe not. But I've collaborated a lot, not just with the Light Bob, but I've worked with uh, Rachel Rosenthal, Barbara Smith, Andy Dick, Louis McAdams. I like getting together with another real artist mm -hmm. and uh, try to find that common ground that turns us both on and becomes a legitimate expression and not a compromise. Well, this is also why bands break up. Yes. Well, Bob and Bob have broken up a million times. We've spent years not seeing each other. And, uh, and But when we come back together, and even now, you know, when the Smithsonian comes or a curator wants to see our work, uh, there we are standing in the same room, and uh, you just fall back into the, what it is that is the team. Right. And so how did that... Is it that I'm curious then, how does the team form at Art Center? Like, did you not like each other then and you just found it? No, we liked each other. Oh. We met and we, we cracked each other up. We had the same sort of uh, idea about art being a, a, some form of rebellion. Mm -hmm. I like to think of art as revolution. And part of my education in the history of art was uh, that art... One style is a revolution against the previous style. So right. classicists came in to rebel against romantics, and pop art uh, rebelled against abstract expressionism. And, uh, so you want to feel like you're breaking new ground because that's the purpose of an aesthetic practice, is to break new ground. If revolution's in the air, I ask my guest, the acclaimed poet, Brendan Constantine, if he agreed with me that poetry, while more popular than ever today, could be truly politically subversive. Brendan, who's known for his dreamy abstraction and the emotional ferocity of his work both on the page and on the stage, gives a thoughtful answer. My uh, understanding of poetry is pretty limited, I, I must say, but, um, and maybe this is a romantic notion, but you know, there was a time, I think, when, you know, in the counter-revolution or the revolution or, or more currently in, in um, South America or even, uh, say, Poland. Okay. When, uh, you know, they came for the poets first. Mm. And I just, you know, I can't see that now. I mean, I don't think in, in our time in America anyway that, you know... In a, in a time of political unrest that they're going to come for the poet first. That's interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was that said, you'll notice that dictators never jail literary critics. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's the artist that's the threat. Um, right. You know, not the person who supposedly really knows what the artist is talking about. Uh, quote-unquote. Um, yeah, I, well, I, I also think that uh, our understanding of the poet's role has changed, and uh, and I don't know 
you know, I mean, I'm familiar with uh, with what you're talking about, and I'm familiar with that uh, expression and the philosophy behind it. I think that uh, the poet also has always been a kind of stand-in for anyone, a sort of surrogate identity for anyone who was living the life of an artist. Um, because you'll notice that a person who paints gets called a painter. A person who does carpentry gets called a carpenter. But someone who writes poetry is not a polymer. They're a poet. <laughs> There's this whole identity that seems implicit in the thing. Uh, and, and, it, you know, and depending on who you ask, what is implicit in there is everything from poverty right. to you know, intense inner turmoil and, um, you know, as though somebody said, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm misunderstood. That's, uh, that's, uh, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm underachieving, you know, exquisitely, you know, and, uh, um, and, uh, that the, you know, the, the poet in that sense is anyone who is openly expressing themselves and living for it or doing it because they have to, um, who isn't just in that sort of bourgeois sense making, art because it's pretty or entertaining, but because they are in fact working something out, they're responding to the world around them. It may even be their own conspicuous hand in their sanity. And that understanding of the poet, I still think is still quite formidable in uh, 2018. And is a voice that uh, someone might wish to silence. Uh, for fear of losing control. A set of contemporary artists that really fascinate me are directly trying to affect positive societal change through their work. Here's a portion of my reprised interview with artist Phil America. I'm really excited to talk about artist activist Phil America. Phil and a handful of really interesting artists here in LA are making art as a social practice. Now these artists treat the fabric of a community as a canvas, if you will. So by combining performance and human interaction and social discourse, their work focuses on engagement and tries to spark a change. They work in and out of the white cubes of galleries and museums where social interaction is not only part of the works organization, but it's an aesthetic unto itself. Let me give you an example. Phil recently embedded himself in a group of asylum seekers along the San Diego Tijuana border. So he makes friends, then he trades new clothes for their worn clothes, and uses those fabrics to make American flags. Then at a crazy risk, he goes and installs them on the actual border wall in the no man's land of the American side. Now this creates a very unconventional quote unquote gallery. But the documentation of the migrant stories and the press he received for the installation gave voice to the voiceless. In kind of the same way, he created a pop-up gallery at the Bonito Swap Meet in LA's MacArthur Park neighborhood. Now that swap meet is notorious as a fence for stolen merchandise, and Phil thought it would be a perfect place to showcase the work of both established artists who've had a run-in with the law, along with art made by convicts. So acting with an almost mm, journalistic impulse, Phil looks at art as a language with which to start a conversation for social change. But I'll let him explain. To put it like very simply and to create like a through line between everything I do is that it all really starts with a question, whether that's a question for me or a question for the public at large or both or to a philosophy of something. 
Um, so, for example, the swap meet gallery, I, I thought it was really interesting that something like this exists and it exists outside the, the way that the city functions and it exists outside bureaucracy. And, um, and then also just like, why, why is it so um, specific to only this specific neighborhood and why would this not exist in West Hollywood, for example? Um, and then just kind of approaching it in that, that way and then looking at how this functions in its own like autonomous way. And so I started going to these swap meets in this area in Westlake and started to, started to make friends with people who were there and who were living there and who were working out of there and uh, ultimately decided to create something within that space that what, cr what I wanted to create was again a gallery and I use that like in quotes, just like the gallery on the border wall. Um, and basically to like create and bring art to a space like this, but then also taking into account what the space is in and of itself is like, this is a swap meet, this isn't a fine art gallery or... Yeah, so for this, I wanted it to exist outside of, of the art world. Like, and again, there's embedded into everything I do, there's of course like art references, there's obviously historical precedent you can point to within the arts, um, all of that comes into play. But then like with this specifically, the idea was to have the gallery be the artwork as well as have artwork right. in the gallery. And so all of the work in the gallery was direct relate, directly related to prison and the prison industrial complex. So there was two parts to that. One, a show um, of all works who were by artists who had been in trouble with the law before. Um, so we had everybody from Shepard Ferry and Chad Barranquez to Utah Ether to like a whole bunch of other artists like who are working within the fine art sphere, but who are also have also like had a run in with the lawless, to put it quite mm -hmm. simply, some some harder sentences than others. Then I coupled that with a bunch of art that was smuggled out of the California prison system. So it was all works by, I mean, for lack of a better description, outsider artists who are not even necessarily considering themselves artists, but are essentially creating craft. Um, for a simple example, a picture frame or a wallet or something functional or non-functional that is made out of cigarette cartons that then right. then like macrame into like an actual artwork. So I partnered with them, paid all of them, and then paid off people to have things smuggled out, and then created the show with that coupled with the artists who are already working within the, right. the art world. In a similar vein is the well-known artist Nancy Baker Cahill, who was recently featured in the LA Times for her work with augmented reality in the latest edition of Desert X. Here, Nancy discusses how she's moving beyond the gallery space to engage and activate a much wider audience. It's really about using drawing and augmented reality as a, as a tool of access. And it sort of charted my original, when I started off working as a studio artist, you know, kind of being haunted by this idea of the singular genius working in isolation, and sort of old white man, you know, right. uh, genius. And coming to understand through a very organic development of a social practice that actually collaboration was what was most sort of creatively fulfilling and kind of got my, my pulse racing a little bit. And when I started to work in first virtual reality um, as a natural sort of conception came out of a very sort of natural conceptual exigency of the of the work which was I wanted to put people inside of the drawings I wanted them to to feel all of my work is really about 
hoping to prompt an empathic response in the viewer, whether it's on paper or VR, AR, whatever. And that that, that led me inexorably to um, understanding that VR, while wonderful and an extraordinary experience, is very singular. And I really wanted to share that experience with a much broader audience. And augmented reality allowed me to do so. And uh, it's just a much more naturally sort of democratic medium because the way we experience it right now, at least, most people can't afford fancy mixed reality glasses, but we right. most, but a lot of people have smartphones and oh, tablets. Right. Not everybody has a smartphone, but I would say a majority of people do. And that's one way to sort of deliver content and to use the tech really subversively and unapologetically to ask questions, um, prompt some kind of thoughtful discourse, and really share not only share the work that I've created, but also invite people to participate in it. But location-based, right? The, that's the later iteration is, is location-based. Oh. So originally, I sort of offered my, my VR drawings translated into AR to an unknown and unseen audience and invited them to, quote-unquote, place them in the context of their choosing. And in doing so, they created incredible content, whether it was political in nature or humorous or even banal. And that sort of exists as a living archive actually on the fourth wall app instagram page because you know people would just all over the world they did which this. we can find where on instagram it's Under at fourth, fourth wall app and it's four with a four not f-o-u-r and um four th <clears throat> and then but then you know and that was amazing and then i was talking with my creative and develop, uh, technical partners and we were talking about what's next for the app and we talked and at the time geolocation was this new opportunity now of course there are beacons and we can get really really um, precise now but for right now for me anyway geolocation is still where I'm operating and I thought wow if I could place these artworks anywhere in the world what about inviting other artists who are working really rigorously and topically to choose a site that's meaningful to them, that's outside of any institution, outside of any gallery, any sort of um, anointed space. Like Freeze. <laughs> like Freeze. <laughs> and, and really turn the, the globe into a kind of opportunity for public art, and but really provocative public art. So I really right. saw it originally as a tool of resistance, and I still do, hmm. um, to, to, to isolate these contested sites or not contested. They don't have to be contested. They could just be whatever it means. Sense of community somewhere. Yeah, right. and and it's and it's a collaborative process. So it's really an invitation to the artist. The artist responds. The artist decides where they want it. They give me a work of art. I translate it into AR, and we place it. We geolocate it there where it lives. Right. Um, you can't see it with the naked eye. You need the the camera as a kind of prosthesis, like a visual prosthesis. But you can see it with the with the camera. But you on. have to be in the space, which is nice. So it demands like, yeah. exactly. It demands that you go to the space, and so it demands that you consider sight as a crucial part of the experience, versus going to an antiseptic space right. and thinking about things. You know, you it, it really um, it, it it genuinely activates the sight. In this final segment, I chat with fellow bookseller and writer Christy Hayden about why analog art books are special in a digitized universe. Christy owns Oof Books in Cypress Park and is instrumental in the book fair and press called Printed Matter. 
Do you keep up with like all these articles that are coming out constantly about the state of books, specifically art books, and like the market? Is it growing? Is it viable? Such I like don't. That. I can't. I I, uh, I think I know what I should be doing, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of we're doing everything we do, right? We're doing the social media. I'm doing yeah. this podcast. We're doing, you know, yeah. trying to trying to. It's all about the community building, as Tosh advised Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh so in terms of whether it's you know rumors of its death are greatly exaggerated or not i don't know yeah i mean the thing that was interesting to me this year is that supposedly the art book market is growing Uh, i i i don't i don't find that surprising actually yeah i mean i think you know with the the glut of of or the cacophony, I should say, mm-hmm. of social media. I mean, and all other media. Mm-hmm. It's great to just like unplug and mm-hmm. hold a book. Mm-hmm. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. I know we're preaching to the choir, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's very true. And I mean, I don't know. I keep up specifically with the art book market. I'm not sure about like printed matter or mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. literary publishing. Um, who knows? I mean, Kindle's still out there. You still have your iPads, your whatnot. And I, I think, I, you know, I don't have either of those things. Mm-hmm. I, um, I prefer to read the newspaper with my arms spread. Yeah. <laughs> it's so challenging. <laughs> <laughs> or at least fold it over. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, well, the reason we're here, I guess, or the reason we're both into it is because I there is something I think more satisfying mm-hmm. to holding a physical thing and that that was Marlo shaking if you heard that <laughs> I want a little and snorting <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah I mean I agree with that and I do think you know specifically with an art book it's an object it's an art object and you and I both traverse in rare books something that's special and I think people you know, there's talk about like the aura in art, like an original art piece has an aura. Um, that's like a Walter Benjamin. Yeah. Yeah. I got the reference, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, for those listening at home. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you. But, yeah, no, 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 that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so like with an art piece that has an aura, and I think there are books that carry that as well. I think like when you have something really special and you know it's really special, like we've had really really amazing like signed works we've had really amazing just like old things that you know have lived so many lives and an interesting portion of like what I do in my bookstore is actually go through libraries of individuals in the art world um, that have had that experience and so their collection is so curated to them and so I feel like that sort of conveys into the store into the buyer um, yeah no that's true I hope you enjoyed this compilation. Of course, there were many more such interesting comments in so many of the other episodes. Of particular note are interviews with gallerists Craig Kroll, Charlie James, and Molly Barnes, which could be compiled into their own best stop. I highly encourage you to take a deeper dive with me into the L.A. art underworld. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, Music and Artist Management Company Regime 72, and A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com. 
Regime72.com, and of course, AGGeiger.com. Thanks for listening.